Thank you for those prayers for the ministry of the Word this morning. Why don't we turn to Exodus chapter 2, as Dan mentioned. If you have one of the church Bibles, that's page 29, right near the beginning. I also want to remind you guys, if you have little ones in the service and they are distracting to you, uh, we do have a nursery right available, like right outside the door here, if you'd like. Uh, but I don't mind chatter. I've never been accused of being too quiet. So I can always get louder. The older I get, the more I appreciate a particular genre of literature, and that is biographies. I'm learning to love them more and more. I love how a good biographer brings the lives of men and women to life through the careful and creative art of describing what's most important over the span of many years, and in that way skillfully summarizes a complex and and sometimes revolutionary life into a comprehensible 15 or maybe 20 hours uh, worth of reading or listening. And one aspect that I've come to appreciate most of all about biographies is usually the first, say, 30 or 40 pages of the biography. And that's because often within these pages are captured the early life lessons and vignettes that, that at the time may even seem trivial or unimportant, but later prove to be valuable preparation for the future work of their subjects. So, for example, two young boys growing up in the 1870s were once given a small helicopter-like toy by their father as a gift. That simple gift became such an inspiration that 30 years later, these now-grown men forever revolutionized the way that human beings travel the globe. Those boys' names were uh, Wilbur and Orville Wright, and they created the first airplane. Or consider the young William Wilberforce who uh, was profoundly influenced by former slave trader John Newton before uh, William went on to abolish the slave trade throughout the entirety of the British Empire. In a similar way, God's chosen mediator throughout the book of Exodus, the man we call Moses, had a remarkable beginning that proved to be valuable preparation for his future work. And that is the subject of our text this morning. This is the story of how God prepares his mediator to save his people. The setting given to us by the previous chapter, we've only been one chapter into Exodus so far, is that the Hebrew people have grown so numerous in the land of Egypt that Pharaoh is taking increasing measures to have the Hebrews enslaved and even killed at birth, the boys in particular. And his latest and most vile edict, in fact, is that every male child born to a Hebrew is to be cast into the Nile River to die. And this is where we pick up in chapter 2. Page 29 in the Church Bibles, we're going to read verses 1 through 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a difference to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. 
Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. So, the, the context, or the, the, uh, the beginning of this chapter picks up with this horrible picture of babies being drowned. And yet, in verse 1 of chapter 2, we learn of a happily married Levite, that is, Hebrew, couple. And verse 2 says that this Hebrew couple had a beautiful baby boy. And normally, that's fantastic news. But not in this case. Not when all Hebrew baby boys are to be tossed into denial to die. So the woman hides her child, and, uh, and, and one can only do that for so long. In fact, the, the parents in the room here probably wonder, how on earth did she hide him for three months? But then something had to be done. Because the edict of Pharaoh was as clear as it was horrific. All the baby Hebrew boys had to be cast into the Nile. And so, this, this, this Levite woman comes up with a plan. She says, okay... I'll obey the edict. I will place this baby into the Nile, but I'm going to build him a little boat. Miraculously, Pharaoh's daughter finds the baby and, knowing full well that it's a Hebrew boy, takes pity on him. It's in that moment that Moses' sister wisely, and at some risk to herself, because she is a, a little slave girl, approaches Pharaoh's daughter and boldly says to her, or at least the text records it that way. It probably came out like, I, um, I, I know some, some Hebrew women. and In fact, I know them really well. And uh, I could probably find her and bring her to you. Would, would that do? Uh, could, I, could I help you in that way? And again, miraculously, Pharaoh's daughter agrees. And even offers to pay Moses' mom for her services. Now, what a day. What a reversal of faiths. Can you imagine the conversation around the dinner table in Moses' home that night? They began the day thinking this is the last day they would ever see their baby boy. And instead, not only is their baby boy alive and nursing at his mother's breasts, but they're being paid. And these are slave people. This may be the only income they get. What a day. What a miracle of God. Praise God for protecting this little boy that he had provided. Now, sometime later, the joy around that table would fade as Moses was still promised to Pharaoh's daughter, and one does not simply ignore Pharaoh's family. And, and so Moses did indeed become her son. In fact, the text tells us that it is Pharaoh's own family, with a per, perhaps a great deal of irony, that names him Moses. We don't even know what his, what his name was before that. But it says that, that it was Pharaoh's daughter that names him Moses. It means drawn out, that he, he was drawn out of the river. And thus Moses is caught between two worlds. The one in which he was born and the one in which he is now being raised. Those worlds were already colliding socially and very soon those two worlds would collide personally as well. But before we go there, before we find out how that happens, let's consider what we should learn from what we've seen so far in the text. Friends, I think what we're supposed to see here is that God is clearly providing a mediator and then protecting that mediator, all for God's future purposes through that mediator. 
And God sometimes does that in ways we won't understand or appreciate until much, much later. For example, Moses' family surely praised God for saving their baby boy from the Nile, but they have no idea of knowing what God intends to do through Moses. There's a good chance that that everyone, or maybe almost everyone in this room, has heard the name Moses. But he was almost just like the other baby boys who were drowned in that Nile. So they, they shouldn't have assumed that this was going to be some fantastic thing, but that's what God did. And so in the same way, we can consider that God has provided each of you. If you were here and listening, God has provided you. And furthermore, God has protected you up to this point, hasn't he? Now, perhaps you weren't saved from being drowned in the Nile, but how many of you have had life-saving surgeries? Even surgeries that had you been born even a decade earlier would not have been possible and you would not be here today. That is God's providing for you. This is God protecting you. And how many of you have avoided a traffic accident by a hair, by a split second? Some of you have been in traffic accidents and have survived. Again, this is God's protection over you. And so we can know that God has provided you. You are here and he has protected you. You are alive and well thus far. Let's praise him for it. And let's, let's marvel, as Moses' family did, wondering, what might God's future be for these people? They are all precious in his sight. Now, Moses' future is unique. Let's read on for the next few verses to see what God does in Moses' life. This is the second point in your outline. God offers salvation through his mediator. And we're going to start by reading verses 11 through 15 in Exodus 2. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now, before we dive into this text, let's look at one more passage there on your outline, Acts 7, which if you have a church Bible, that's page 595, 595. This is an account spoken by Stephen, which some of you may know is the first Christian martyr, and he's telling the same story, and we want to get his perspective here because he offers us a little insight that we might otherwise miss in Exodus 2. So let's look at, uh, this is Acts 7, verses 17 through 29. Okay, so this is going to be backing up a little bit. This is going to be telling you a little bit about Exodus 1, too. But, at the time, but as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. 
And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. A little bit of a spoiler there at the end, sorry. I wanted to read this second account by Stephen because he offers us a few helpful details and corrects, helps correct an often wrong interpretation of Exodus 2. Here's what I mean. First, we're told here in Exodus 2 that these events happened when Moses had grown up. And so we might assume, oh, he's like a teenager, maybe a college student age, right? But Stephen says, actually, he was 40 years old. That's what he means by grown up, which but I was thrilled to, re- so to realize that means that I'm almost, finally, at long last, a grown-up. <laughs> it's been a long time coming, my friends tell me. But really, this does put the whole story in perspective, doesn't it? Like, Moses is not some young teenage rebel here. This, this, this is, he's a mature man. He, he was mighty in word and deed, Stephen says. So when we read in Exodus 2, verse 12... It says, Moses looked this way and that, and seeing no one, struck down the Egyptian. And when he's looking this way and that, that, that's not meant to be read as Moses fearing getting his hand caught in the cookie jar. Okay, this, this is not some childish impulse or prank going awry. The, Stephen says that Moses considered this God giving his people salvation through his hand. In other words, God had provided a mediator and prepared that mediator to save while in Pharaoh's house. And now God was offering that salvation through his mediator 40 years later. Do you see, friends, the implication here? This means that the exodus of God's people was to begin here in Exodus 2. Right here, no, no bricks without straw, no plagues, no Red Sea necessary. This was God's intent, that Moses would save them right here and now. But, as we read in both Exodus and Acts, that is not what happened. Though God offered salvation through his mediator, it was not accepted. In fact, it was scorned by the very people Moses sought to save, his own people, the Hebrews. Who made you a prince and a judge over us, they say. And so, fearing for his life and from his own adoptive grandfather, Moses, at 40 years old, runs away from home. So what are we to make of this? The answer to that lies, as it so often does in the scriptures, in answering the rhetorical questions of those who spurn God. And so we shall. The question here is, who made you a prince and a judge over us? This was asked in order to scorn Moses, but the answer is profound. Okay? Who indeed made Moses a prince? Well, based on what we saw earlier in the text, God did! God made him a mediator. He provided the mediator, protected him, made him a prince over his people, even in the house of Pharaoh himself. God made him a prince, and who made Moses a judge? Okay, to be fair, in some sense, God had not yet done that. But 
As we read throughout our series in Exodus, we're going to see that that's exactly what God intended to do. In fact, Moses' role as judge over the Hebrew people will be so coveted, so valuable, so desired, that he'll be overwhelmed by the sheer number of requests coming from the Hebrew people. Such that he has to create sub-courts, because everybody wants to talk to Moses because he's such a good judge. And so, thus, friends, God made Moses a prince and a judge over them, and they should have realized it, but they didn't. And thus the point we're to see here in Exodus 2, as well as in Acts 7, is that God offers salvation through his mediator, even as prince and judge. So let's consider just one application from this section. And it is this. Write this down. Humbly recognize that God may be using someone, even if we can't see it. Let me say that again. Humbly recognize that God may be using someone even if we can't see it. In this text, God was offering his people salvation, but they rejected it because they couldn't imagine that God had actually made Moses a prince and a judge over them. And sure enough, there have been many, many seemingly oddball people throughout history, the foremost of them being Jesus of Nazareth, who were God's agents of salvation, yet they were rejected by the very ones who were not humble enough to see God's hand at work trying to save them. So practically speaking, look around. Do you see some oddballs in this room right now? No, really. I mean, you look around and there's some people, you're like, they're, they're just, they're a little different. They, they talk about things a little different. They, they do things a little different. Does someone speak, maybe a little too much or a little too loudly, maybe a lot too loudly, about God's call to missions? or to adoption, or to community, or to service, or to discipleship, or to prayer, or to whatever. You know who I'm talking about, right? Some of you are like, oh wait, is that that me? (laughs) Yes, it's probably you. And and isn't it easy to dismiss those people? Because they're just just different. They're a little little too much. Like, I'm doing my thing, and they're talking about something else. But is it possible that they are God's chosen instruments to offer us some measure of salvation that we are missing? This passage in Exodus 2, I think, should cause us to pause at least a few moments before answering definitively no. And let me tell you, friends, it is the sincere desires of of the elders, including myself, here at Grace Fellowship Church, that those oddballs here, of which most of us are, would not be rejected, but celebrated. We have much to learn from them. Now, that's not to say that we as a church should or even can run with every idea. We just can't. But can we as a church humbly recognize that God may be using someone even if we can't yet see it? So at the end of this section, we find Moses rejected by his people, sitting down by a well in a foreign country. Let's read what happens next. Next point in our outline, God delivers through his rejected mediator, verses 16 through 22. Now the prince of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. 
The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Rahuel, he said, how is it you have been home, or you've come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Here's a Bible study tip. Whenever you find a biblical character at a well, think this person's about to find a spouse. It happened to Isaac. It happened to Jacob. It even, metaphorically, happens to, to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, doesn't it? And here, it happens to Moses. But let's back up. First off, we find Moses in the land of Midian with its inhabitants, the Midianites. Okay, so Moses probably considered these people something like distant cousins. Okay, close enough... They were descendants of Abraham, close enough that he'd be accepted, but far enough that the rumors of what he'd done in Egypt would not have been known. So here's Moses sitting at a well when seven daughters of the local priest approach to feed their father's flocks. However, some shepherds show up, and we're not told why, but they don't like these daughters being there and drive them away. But Moses stands up and saves them and then waters their flocks. The daughters report back to their father, then an Egyptian saved them from the shepherds, and Moses is soon welcomed into the home and then into the family. So what does this mean? Why are these few verses included here in Moses' story? I think, friends, that it's to demonstrate that even when God's people reject God's mediator, which happens quite often, God has absolutely no intention of giving up. God will still deliver his people through his rejected mediator. In fact, this particular episode comes with a bit of an ironic twist. Here, the daughters say that an Egyptian delivered them out of the hands of the shepherds. But in the coming chapters in Exodus, we're going to see that Moses, then a shepherd, will deliver the people out of the hands of the Egyptians. The scenario reverses itself, but it's still Moses, God's rejected mediator, doing the saving. I think that's kind of fun. God is preparing his mediator even now to save his people. So how do we apply this? Well, first, singles. If you're tired of single life, find a well and sit down. <laughs> Works every time. And now they're all wondering if I'm serious. <laughs> Next application. Have you been rejected by friends family, co-workers, or even fellow believers? If so, don't lose heart. God may be preparing you to save those who rejected you. God seems to enjoy using rejects as instruments to save God's people. Moses was rejected by the Hebrews, but will later lead them through the Red Sea. Jesus was rejected by nearly everyone, even his closest friends, and later saved them through his death on the cross. I was led to Christ personally by several individuals that I regularly mocked, manipulated, and ignored. And I am personally aware, through conversations with those of you in this room, that some of you who are sitting here have been rejected by a parent, or a sibling, or a close friend, and yet, somehow, miraculously, your heart's desire 
is to see those people come to know the saving love of Jesus Christ. If that's you, dear brother or sister, don't give up. Don't give up. God delights in using his rejected mediators to win people to himself. And as we'll see, sometimes it takes 40 years for that to happen. Let's finish our time in Exodus 2 by looking at our final point. God remembers his people while his mediator is away. Verses 23 through 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Now the astute observer will notice that the word God has not actually shown up until this point in Exodus 2. But when it does... It shows up in a big way. The context of using God, the word God, is that during those many days when Moses was in Midian, 40 years, turns out, he'll be 80 years old at the burning bush in chapter 3, which we'll get to next week. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. That is, the one that whom Moses feared and had caused him to flee is now dead. But more significantly, we're told that the people of Israel were groaning in their slavery. And, and we see that God, when God's name finally shows up here, that God responded. Look at the text. Verse 24, God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant. Verse 25, God saw the people. God knew. So what? What does that mean? Consider the state of Israel at the time. They were like kings of the world a couple generations ago. Joseph was functionally in charge of Egypt. Pharaoh gave him and his people whatever they wanted, and they were free from all fears. But now they are slaves. And the more they try to obey God, the more they multiply and fill the earth as he had commanded the more they are oppressed, even to the point of having their baby boys drown in a river. So they are understandably wondering, does God hear this? Does God see? God, do you know what's happening here? Or have you forgotten your people? And friends, these are not uncommon questions. If, if you just... Search the Bible. Just read through it. It's filled with people asking, does God care? Is he listening? Does he see what's happening? There are many pages in this book about people wondering, has God forgotten us? And here, even in Exodus 2, we've been looking at today, God's people's backs break under the relentless weight of slavery and their hearts break every single day when they look out into the village square and see a bunch of little girls running around playing. But there are no boys. No Hebrew boy survived the evil commands of the king. Do you hear this, God? 
Oh, but there was that one boy, Moses, I think his name was. He grew up living a comfortable, pampered life. Where? In Pharaoh's court. Even though we're his people, what is he doing there? How come he doesn't suffer? Oh, and then one day, do you guys remember, he came and he visited us. But rather than delivering us, he often disappeared. Now he's been herding sheep on the backside of a mountain in Midian for the past 40 years. Where is Moses? Where is God? Does he care? Does he see? Has God forgotten? And yet, here at the end of Exodus chapter 2, we read that God hears, that God sees, that God knows, and God remembers. That means, friends, that God hears, that God sees, that God knows, and that God remembers even when it seems to us like he's completely forgotten. Even when it seems like his mediator is never coming back. So what does that look like practically for us here at Grace Fellowship Church? Well, friends, I think this is a call for us to believe and to persevere. Does it feel like God has stopped hearing you? Have you been crying out to God day after day, week after week, maybe even year after year, that he would act, that he would rescue? Has he seemed silent? This passage and all the glorious work that is to follow in the rest of Exodus declares to you today that God does hear, and he has not forgotten you. Does it seem to you that God does not see the evil rallying against you? Though you do backbreaking work and pour your heart out into serving him and representing him in the world, does it seem that your efforts are yielding nothing but disappointment? The story of Exodus tells us, friends, that God sees you. He has not forgotten you. And as we too, even this very day, watch countless young lives being destroyed, cut off from the living even before they leave the womb, we must not think for a moment that God doesn't know. Oh, friends, He knows. He knows every single hair on their wonderfully made little heads. And just as he personally watched and raged over each and every baby who entered the Nile and drew their last breath, he rages still over every baby who never gets to draw their first. God knows, friends. God knows. He knows intimately all things, even when his chosen mediator is away for a really, really long time. That mediator will return, friends. It is promised. And he will bring with him God's justice against all who brought about the groaning of his people. And he will rescue those who have been waiting so long for his coming. He has not forgotten And over the coming months, we're going to be learning more 
about this throughout the book of Exodus, seeing how God uses Moses, his chosen mediator. But the story of the Bible is not ultimately about Moses, but it's about Jesus Christ, God's chosen mediator. But their paths are similar, aren't they? Consider each of the things we saw God do with his mediator, Moses. We see them also in Jesus. Just look at your outline. We saw in verses 1 through 10 that God provides a mediator and protects his mediator, right? God provided Jesus just as he promised to do many times throughout the scriptures. And just as Pharaoh tried to kill Moses, so did Herod try to kill Jesus. In both cases, God protected his mediator for his future salvation plan. We, thought, we saw then in verses 11 through 15 that God offers salvation through his mediator. And though God's people did not recognize it until much later, God intended that his mediator would save his people. And we read in the New Testament in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, listen to this, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. Who? The man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for us all. Then in verses 16 through 22, God delivers through his rejected mediator, right? We looked at that. Moses, though rejected, selflessly continues his work of deliverance. So did Jesus. In Romans 5, verse 8, it tells us that while we were yet sinners, that is, people who rejected God, Christ died for us. And finally, in verses 23 through 25, God remembered his people while his mediator was away. Well, Moses was in exile, but God heard and remembered his people, right? He would indeed save them. Jesus Christ, our mediator, if you call upon his name, is now at his father's side. He's away for now, but we, his people, are not forgotten. He is, in fact, interceding and perfecting every prayer. So, friends... If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your mediator, you can know that he saved you. You can know that he is saving you and that one day he will return and complete his saving work. You are not forgotten, no matter how bad things seem. But some of you may be here this morning and have not called on Jesus to save you, have not called on him to be your mediator. And But... but, Please don't leave here today if you haven't done that. Or if you're not sure if you have. Maybe it was a really long time ago and it hasn't really affected your life. If that describes you, please turn to one of these oddball people sitting around you and ask them about it before you leave today. Let them tell you about the amazing work he's done in their lives. He has not forgotten you. He has not forgotten them. Because just as God in Exodus through Moses will soon destroy the entirety of Egypt. So God, through Jesus, will soon destroy the entirety of all nations and all peoples who persist in rebelling against him today. This is coming. But God has provided a mediator to reconcile God and men. May we all hear him and accept him and, off, and, and, and accept his free pardon and be part of the coming salvation of our mediator, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this chapter, these, this, this 
early vignette of Moses' life, God, it's, it's amazing to see all the ways that you used even this rejected man, this man who had a crazy beginning, a miraculous beginning, an imperfect beginning. And God, we are like him. You have delivered us. We are here. You are using us, whether we know it or not. And we know that you are coming back. We know that, that as your people cry out to you, you hear them. You see them. You remember them. You know what's going on. And you will return and punish all those who persist in rebelling against you. But God, thank you for sending Jesus, who rescued us, who is our mediator, who perfects our prayers such that you look at us. If we have called on Jesus to be our mediator, and you say we are beautiful in your sight. Thank you, Lord, for saving us. Thank you for your wonderful work. Thanks for not forgetting us. We praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen.